Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. David Stender to discuss his new book, Globalizing Morocco, Transnational Activism in the Postcolonial State. Dr. Stenner examines a previously understudied facet of the Moroccan nationalist struggle from independence from France in the early 1950s, and in doing so, it analyzes some of both the assets and limitations thereof. Dr. Stenner, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I did my bachelor in Semitic, Semitic philology and political science, and then my master's in Middle East studies, both at Uppsala University in Sweden, and I spent about a year and a half there um, afterwards and during that period uh, living in Egypt. And I realized I wanted to do a PhD in history. Um, I didn't really know what exactly history is, except for that it's about the past, because I've never had an advanced history class before. And I knew I wanted to do something on the Arab world that wasn't Egypt. Um, and so I applied to various programs in the U.S., and one accepted me somehow. And uh, basically, I took it from there and then eventually became a historian, got a Ph.D., and now published a book. And it seems to be going well. So this book, um, Globalizing Morocco, this grew out of your dissertation then? Yes. And what led you to this specific topic? During the first summer in grad school, I went to Morocco. My advisor, Susan Miller, had suggested that and um, basically check it out and see if I liked it. And during that period, I read some nationalist historiography because I knew I wanted to do something about colonialism. And while reading these books, one name came up again and again, and that was Rom Lando. So I did what everybody does. I just Googled the name, and I saw that he used to be a professor at a liberal arts college in California. And I also saw that they still had his private papers. And uh, so I just took a train down from Davis to Stockton, and I checked it out, and I found an amazing collection of correspondences with basically the who is the who is basically everybody in the nationalist movement um and he even got telegrams from the king and other prominent persons and i realized i had a vital project there and then i just followed up from from there and it took me across the u.s and to europe and to north africa and uh ultimately it led to the book that i recently published so where does this book sit, sort of in in the in the field of Moroccan nationalist historiography? So the book uh, does several things. First of all, the history of nationalism in Morocco, in particular, and in the Maghreb in general, is rather underdeveloped. Um, you know, but maybe with a partial exception of anything related to the Algerian Revolution. Um, that which has been written on Moroccan nationalism is usually looking at, you know, basically how they organized um, in order to you know, get rid of the French and Spanish colonizers, which they ultimately achieved in March 1956. Um, so my book points out or shows that the struggle abroad, the propaganda struggle abroad against the colonizers was at least as important as the struggle on the home front. The other thing it does is it contributes to one of the major sort of questions in Moroccan history, namely, why is it that after independence, Morocco maintained the monarchy, basically became an authoritarian monarchy, um, and it did not become a republic, let's say, like Tunisia. And many people have written about that, and there are some very good explanations. And I'm arguing in my book that to understand this transformation, the state formation from, let's say, 56 to 60, 61, 
we also have to look at the legacy of the nationalist movement's global anti-colonial campaign and how it sort of played out after independence and enabled the king to co-opt some of the most important um, activists that had been working abroad, draw them to his side and thereby strengthen his position and the position of the royal family in general. Okay. Uh, I that's really useful to understand, I think. So let's start with your first chapter. Everything sort of picks up in Tangier. So tell us what's going on in your first chapter. So the first chapter deals, so the, the structure of the book in general is, uh, consists of five chapters and each one focuses on one city. And so I, the first one is Tangier, which was an international zone, right? Morocco was uh, colonized mainly by the French, with the northern part colonized by the Spanish, and Tangier was this international zone ruled by an international committee of control. And therefore, in Tangier, um, the political activists had a lot of freedoms that they did not have in either Spanish or French Morocco. That was the first major advantage. And so, while virtually all of the nationalists came either from Rabat, from Fez, or from Tetuan, that was the capital of northern Morocco, sort of Tangier is this perfect nodal point that allowed them to operate, to smuggle materials into Morocco or out of Morocco to meet with people visiting. And while it wasn't perhaps the most active hotspot of nationalist activism, it was the place where they could sort of create their hub that connected Morocco to the outside world. And one of the most famous moments in the history of anti-colonialism in Morocco is April 1947. The Sultan visits the international city to sort of reclaim it um, as part of his empire, to rather show that it belongs to him. And during his many events that he holds, he gives his famous speech in which he expresses solidarity with the Arab League. It's a complete disaster for the French, who are super embarrassed in front of an international audience, the New York Times, everybody's reporting about it. But around this event, the nationalists had organized um, various outreach events. They held meetings or they had public tea parties with American officers visiting the city. They reached out to international journalists. They had sort of had a little journalism office where they produced film and audio files that they distributed among the journalists. So this is sort of encapsulates their whole approach. And Tanjir just was the place where they were uh, able to be much freer in their activities on Moroccan soil than anywhere else. Well, that sort of leads into your first chapter, uh, which is set in Tangier, which, as you know, is a, an important site for organizing for early Moroccan nationalists. So tell us a little bit about that. So Tangier was an international zone controlled by an international committee of control. Unlike northern Morocco, there was a Spanish protectorate and southern Morocco, there was a French protectorate. And so Tangier was important because, A, there were a lot of foreigners moving in and out, and B, because the Moroccans, as they were active, had more freedoms there than they had in either Spanish or French Morocco. So that was sort of the centrality of Tangier for the international campaign that the Moroccans conducted, even though the heart of the Moroccan nationalist movement was sort of on the axis between Fez, Rabat, Casablanca, and Tetuan in the north. And one event that epitomizes the importance of Tangier was the famous story of Sultan uh, Mohammed V, or Mohammed ben Yusuf back then, visiting the city in April 1947. And he does so in order to, you know, show that the entire country, you know, belongs to him. And he gives a public speech, and he's supposed to praise the French, but instead... He praises the Arab League. It's a complete PR disaster for the French who get absolutely angry about that. I mean, the whole world is reporting about it. New York Times, London Times. Um, but what happened on the sidelines is just as important because the nationalists had sort of set up a media liaison office where they produced video clips and audio clips that they disseminated among international journalists visiting. 
And they also just, you know, networked among foreign newspaper writers that were in the city. They also organized public events to support the Sultan and show their solidarity. And the Sultan, even though he himself could not attend, sent his children to attend these events in order to show his solidarity with the nationalist movement. So these kind of things would not have been possible in either the French or the Spanish zone. And for that reason, the Moroccans used Tangier for a long time as their main office that connected their activities at home with their offices abroad because they could smuggle um, letters through the British mail service that was active there. They could transfer money abroad. And sometimes every now and then when some nationalists were exiled from either French or Spanish Morocco, they just moved to Tangier, which was sort of legally outside of the protectorates. And then those activists resided there. So then uh, you also begin to see some of this early networking between nationalists and especially uh, foreign observers, whether military, diplomatic, businessmen. Tell us a little bit about that. So among the first group of supporters that the Moroccans drew to their side were American, former American servicemen. So these were GIs that had served in the Second World War, had been discharged and returned to Morocco because they realized that there were a lot of business opportunities. And one of the advantages they had is that the United States had never relinquished its uh, capitulations, its 19th, 19th century capitulations when the protectorates were established. And therefore, they were not, the U.S. citizens were not subject to the import and export regulations um, that French and other citizens were subject to. So they used this to basically become importers and exporters from Morocco and use this little niche. And in order to do that, they often teamed up with Moroccan businessmen, most of whom were supporters of the nationalist movement. And sort of this is how they got into the into the circle of the Moroccan nationalists. And just two prominent individuals, one is Robert E. Rhodes. He's a former OSS agent, an OSS officer, right? That's the precursor of the CAA. He returns, he becomes a businessman, and he's very aggressive in lobbying in Washington, D.C. to make sure that the U.S. government continues to pressure France to protect the privileges of the Americans. Sort of that, and obviously this campaign to raise awareness about French colonialism in Morocco is very much in the interests of the nationalists. And another person that is really prominent here is Kenneth Pendar. He also served in the OSS. And he sets up with a colleague in 1947, a local bottling plant, um, basically in Casablanca, but later also in Tangier, that bottles Coca-Cola for the Moroccan market. And he becomes a very close ally of the nationalists. He become, begins to advertise in the nationalist press. Um, he sponsors events surrounding uh, the throne day, that is sort of the national uh, pro-monarchy holiday in November uh, in 1949. And overall, he then becomes one of the allies. He, from Tanji, for example, helps the Moroccans send money abroad to finance their offices. He uses his personal connections in Paris and in other places in order to promote the case for Moroccan independence among American diplomats. So that Tangier was again was sort of a hub even many of these other americans that the nationalists recruited were ultimately um not stationed in tangier itself but they also operated through tangier when they provided support to the nationalist movement and then your second chapter um we we shift gears over to Cairo, where, uh, of course, there's this very strong Arab nationalist movement and these Moroccan nationalists sort of find themselves enmeshed in another kind of complicated diplomacy. And break that down a little bit for us. Right. So in 1946, the nationalists in Spanish Morocco managed to convince the high commissioner in Tetouan to send a delegation to the Arab League's cultural committee. And this is sort of interwoven with Spanish post-1945 foreign policy. I mean, Spain was isolated on the international stage and was not allowed to join the UN because of its fascist regime. And so therefore, Franco decided to reach out to the Arab League. 
And Spanish officials thought that was a brilliant idea to send the Moroccans to Cairo to basically tell all the Arabs how great the Spanish were. So they were allowed to send a delegation of th- consisting of three men, two of whom were nationalists and one was sort of a, an ally of the high commissioner. So they stepped before the Arab League in the spring of 1946. And it turns out the whole thing didn't go as planned for the Spanish because instead, they, instead of praising the Spanish, they demand independence and demand the help of the Arab League. Of course, it's again, it's a total fiasco for the Spanish. The nationalists, the two nationalists remain in Cairo. And together with activists from Algeria and Tunisia that are already there, in early 1947, they establish the office of the Arab Maghreb that becomes the main propaganda um, office and hub in the Arab world. And from there, they successfully network with the elites of the Arab world, with journalists, with politicians, with diplomats, with men of letters. And ultimately, they have one great success when in 47, the former hero of the Reef Rebellion from the 1920s, Abdel Karim, who had pretty successfully fought against the Spanish and the French for six years before being arrested and exiled to an island, to a French island uh, called Réunion. And he's being brought to the metropole with his family on a ship because he's an old man and I think they just want to give him a nice retirement in France. And as the ship enters the Suez Canal, the Moroccans board or they send a delegation that delegation secretly boards the ship and convinces Abdel Karim to disembark with his family. He's then brought to Cairo and it's this great moment. Abdel Karim is received by the king. He's granted a villa and the entire international media is reporting about it. And again, it's one of those great publicity disasters for the French. And from this uh, office of the Arab Maghreb, the, Na- the Moroccans, and that's whom I'm mainly focusing on, obviously, and they were also the most active ones, even though, I have to point out, the Algerians and the Tunisians were also there and were also doing their thing. They used this to um, bring their case to local and then regional attention. Ultimately, though, they run into a big problem. Um, the Arab League you know, show some interest and give some support, but the case of Palestine overshadows everything. Um, The other thing is that the Arab League likes to talk a lot, but they don't really do that much. So that ultimately, after these initial successes, the Moroccans are popular in Egypt. They get attention, but they don't really get the Arab League to do that much for them. And then in the summer of 52, we have the uh, military coup by the free officers who you know, um, sweep away the monarchy and they demand radical pan-Arab nationalism and radical anti-imperialism. And so the Moroccans think, this is great. This is going to help us. This is sort of the boost we need. However, it actually doesn't work out for them because the problem is that uh, Nasser and his colleagues were Republicans and the Moroccans were monarchists. The free officers believed in socialism. And the Moroccan nationalists were members of the Moroccan bourgeoisie. The Moroccans believed in sort of a diplomatic campaign of talking, of networking, and the free officers were men of action. And so for these reasons, the free officers really and the new regime does not like the Moroccans. They make that very clear. Um, Also, they remove from the local political and uh, media scene virtually all of the old elite whom they identify as the allies or as the symbols of the corrupt old order. But these people had been the main supporters of the Moroccans. So so thereby, both indirectly and directly, the new regime undermines the Moroccan campaign for independence in Cairo and by extension in the entire Arab world. And while the office you know, remains until 55, 56. And there are some Moroccans active there. Overall, after 52, Cairo really is no longer the main site of Moroccan anti-colonial activism abroad. So then in your third chapter, it, it you start to see where it's shifting towards, and that's Paris, which on the one hand makes sense because Paris is also effectively um, where Morocco is controlled. Um, 
Before we dive into that, though, I had one quick question. You start to see exactly how complicated and suave these guys are in imagining this sort of camp, this diplomatic campaign that's increasingly sort of webs its way across the world. Were there earlier campaigns that served as precedents for these guys? Yes. So I actually wrote an article published in the Journal of Global History in 2016 called Centering the Periphery. And that details how already in the 1920s and 30s, where most of these people that later after the Second World War are the leaders of the nationalist movement, um, during their student years, either in Paris or in Palestine, or in Cairo, already began to reach out. They work closely with Shakib Arslan, who, of course, is sort of the number one known advocate for Islamic-slash-Arab uh, anti-colonialism. And they had, they sent delegates, for example, to the uh, General Islamic Congress in Jerusalem in 1931, to the Arabic-Islamic Parliamentary Conference on Palestine, it takes place in Cairo in 1938. So they are already very much into um, networking, into bringing their case to at least regional attention in order to get public support for a variety of reasons that isn't that successful yet, but it's sort of the first stage during which they learn what works, what does not work. So when they reinitiate their campaign, after 45, it is much more sophisticated, and they basically have learned from what they have done, and they have indirectly learned through Arslan and others from other nationalist movements that had been you know, inundating the League of Nations in Geneva during the interwar period in Europe. So then shifting our focus back to Paris, what does the campaign for Moroccan nationalism look like on the ground in Paris? So in Paris, the situation is, of course, very different from Cairo. Um, one advantage is that there's a large Moroccan uh, community, mainly workers uh, that worked in mines, factories, um, steel mills, etc. And they basically lived as a lumpen proletariat on the outskirts of Paris. And they are, by and large, not politicized in the sense of you know modern uh, nationalist awareness, the way that the nationalist movement defines it. But at least they are there. So one of the things they do is to um, organize a community center in Genevilliers on the outskirts of Paris, um, where they offer social services, Arabic classes, public health services to the Moroccan workers in order to indoctrinate them with the nationalist doctrine and hope that when they return to Morocco to visit family and friends, they will spread the message of you know, the Moroccan nation, basically, even in tribal and rural regions, until then not really reached by the Istiqlal, which is the nationalist party. Um, the main leaders of the nationalist campaign in Paris is a really small group of Moroccan students that have been studying in Paris during the war, and they grow to a few hundred after the war. And out of those, a few dozen are very active. And they basically, instead of studying, spend most of their times, you know, reaching out to public figures, trying to convince journalists, trying to convince politicians to support them, pretty similar to what actually happens in Cairo in this regard. But the difference here is that they are much more successful. And at first, it takes a little while to sort of gain traction, but through their relentless networking, especially among journalists and politicians that are sort of moderately um, sympathetic towards their positions, they actually get feet into the doors of especially the uh, Christian Democratic MRP, that's one of the main parties in uh, France, and to a lesser degree, also the Socialist Party. And ultimately, their biggest success comes after 1952. In December 1952, there are large protests in Casablanca about the assassination of a popular Tunisian nationalist and labor activist. And they basically um, lead to large-scale riots in Casablanca. The, the French move in, and we don't know exactly what happens, but they kill three to four to five hundred unarmed protesters. And at first, nothing happens. 
The French banned the nationalist party, the Istiklal, they banned the nationalist press, and that's that. But the Moroccans have been networking so successfully that by now they managed to convince François Mauriac, who has just received the Nobel Prize in Literature in Sweden. He's coming back, he meets with them, and he's so shocked by what he hears that he publishes a number of articles in Le Figaro, which is sort of the main conservative newspaper in France. And this sends shockwaves through French society. Because previous to that, there were some left-wing people that had sort of supported or sort of shown some sort of sympathy towards the Moroccans. But that somebody like Mauriac, with the support of Le Figaro, would pretty dramatically attack French colonialism as basically racist, um, brings the topic to public debate. There are, you know, there's a lot of back and forth in the media. Politicians begin to discuss it. And to cut a long story short, by 1955, the pressure um, on the topic of Morocco has gotten so big that the National Assembly begins to discuss it. And um, by the fall of 1955, it becomes clear that a vast majority of French politicians support granting Morocco some kind of independence in the short term. Now, this is interesting because so much of, of what goes on, especially in this chapter, although also in your chapter in the United States, Catholic civil society groups become really involved in this. Um, and, and they begin to weigh in on this question of Moroccan independence. Do they find themselves in conflict at all with the churches and official bodies in France or elsewhere? That is a great question to which I only have a partial answer. Um, so, yes, you're, of course, right. The, you know, the MRP, the Christian Democratic Party as well as François Mauriac, which is, you know, maybe the most prominent Catholic, very Catholic public intellectual, and many others begin to support him. There's also a group of, there are groups of left-wing Catholics organized around the magazine uh, Timonage Chrétien, um, who also begin to sympathize with the Moroccans. So there is a, in addition to the left, it's actually the Catholic left and, you know, actually even some members of the Catholic center-right that support them very actively. So I can, I didn't really investigate how exactly the Catholic hierarchy and the clergy reacted to it because these individuals, virtually none of them were actually members of the clergy, right? These were lay people who happened mm-hmm. to be Catholic. So, the other thing is inside Morocco, obviously the Catholic Church was very strongly in favor of the colonial project, and they were extremely unsympathetic to what they perceived to be these, you know, obscure left-wing Catholics in the metropole. Although even there, even in Morocco, though to a much lesser degree, there were some uh, uh, Catholics, such as the owner of the newspaper Maroc Press, which also grew increasingly sympathetic towards the cause of you know Moroccan independence so to sort of sum it up I don't really know the details of the inter-Catholic debates um, about this topic but obviously that'd be a great topic of research for somebody who wants to go and check that out hint hint to any graduate students who might be listening to this program right now exactly mm-hmm so then my sort of my other question, because here you really start to see the, just the extent to which this this propaganda machine is being directed towards consumption. How directed is this propaganda work that's coming from these Moroccan nationalists? Was Is it being sort of established sort of at, at headquarters, so to speak, back in Morocco, or is, does it just sort of organically develop on the ground? Um, I would say the vast majority is done locally. So that is, I mean, it's both a necessity and it is foresight that leads to that. First of all, you know, the Moroccans, the Moroccan nationalist movement, I mean, it does become quite large by 56. You know, they stick loud. We don't really know exactly, but they had several hundred thousand members. Some claim up to half a million. But the leadership of the nationalist parties, the Hispal Islah in the Party of National Reform in Northern Morocco and the Istiklal in French Morocco, both of which worked hand-in-hand abroad. They're basically these elite figures, uh, members of the old Moroccan bourgeoisie. So there are not that many of them there in the first place. Second of all, they decide to send those people to the right places, right? So students in Paris, they organize locally because they know how French society works. They know how to talk to French citizens, right? So when you look at the publications, when you look at their speeches, 
every time they talk in France, they praise France, they praise the revolution, the French Republic, the Republican values. They praise how the French defeated the Nazis. And they basically say, look, France stands for liberty and equality and human rights. And we just want to have the same thing for ourselves. So basically, it's the most French thing to do to grant us independence. In Cairo, of course, the story is different, right? There it is much more of an appeal to Islamic, but especially Arabic solidarity. It is run by students as well as, you know, some people sent there mainly from Spanish Morocco that have in their youth studied in Cairo. And it's a, the, the language used in their publications and in their public statements it is much more critical of France, unsurprisingly, and really showing, you know, the bloody and brutal nature of what was French colonialism. And so overall, if you look at each context, um, it really is driven by local activists. It really is a decentralized uh, operation with relatively flat hierarchies. And at least until independence in Morocco, that works quite well for the nationalists. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to return to that question. But before we get there, we, we have to talk a little bit about New York because... New York becomes another central hub of this organizing. Tell us what goes on there. So the Moroccans realize, of course, after you know the arrival of U.S. troops in North Africa in November 1942, and then you know after 45, the you know beginning of the new global order that will eventually become the Cold War, that the new place to be is New York, and so. In 1947, in the summer of 1947, they sent their first one-man delegate to New York. And just to sort of give you a timeline, it's in the spring of 1947 that the Moroccans have officially opened their office of the Arab Maghreb in Cairo and their new official office in Paris. So it's just a few months later. So they sent this one guy, Mehdi Benouna, abroad. And he was, I think, just one of two or three people that spoke some English. So there weren't that many people to choose from in the first place. And he goes over and it turns out he is a natural talent. He meets um, various Arab diplomats who like him. They take him with them to Flushing, where the temporary um, building for the United Nations is at that time. And they introduce him to various other diplomats who all like him. He meets journalists. He meets some American diplomats as well. And he's extremely successful. For example... Eight week, within the first eight weeks of his arrival, the New York Times publishes three articles about him. And a few weeks later, the uh, Egyptian prime minister, Nukrashi Basha, comes and the Egyptian diplomats ask Mehdi Benouna if he could sort of you know, spread the word about the arrival of their uh, politician among the American media because he was so well connected already. And ultimately, the whole thing doesn't really lead to Morocco being placed on the agenda of the General Assembly, because this, during the fall, um, the one topic that dominates debate is, of course, Palestine. And so, you know, Benouna is there. He's there doing the debates about Palestine. He warns the other Arabs and says, don't bet on uh, winning this. Of course, we want to win it, but we're probably not um, but ultimately, um, they are the Arabs decide to sideline the issue of Morocco, go all in on Palestine, which is understandable. But ultimately, of course, they are defeated and Palestine is divided. Benuna goes back home after six months and he says that, well, you know, New York is the most important place. We have to go there. We have to be active, but we are not ready yet. And so they spend a lot of time preparing. And then here comes Tanjir back in. Um, in 1949, this gentleman, Rom Landau, whom I had met, visits Morocco. And there had already been several other British journalists visiting Morocco, whom um, the Moroccans had recruited to their cause. But what was special with Rom Landau is that he really falls in love with Morocco. He's this really strange character. So his specialties are plastic arts, sexuality, and spirituality. And he dedicates himself, you know, he goes all in. He goes back to England and he publishes a book, Invitation to Morocco, which he sends to everybody, right? Aldous Huxley, uh, Maynard Keynes, um, King George. Everybody gets a copy. Churchill gets a copy, right? They all write him back. Thank you for this great book. He returns to Morocco a few more times 
until eventually the Moroccans ask him whether he wants to go to New York and Washington and lobby for Moroccan independence on their behalf. And he says, well, it sounds like a great plan. He goes abroad. And he, back then, apparently, was much easier to get your foot in the door in Washington, D.C., right? He lectures at the State Department, the CIA, university campuses. He goes before the Senate's Foreign Relations Committee and spreads the, you know, nationalist gospel there. And at the same time, the nationalists have already uh, sent two of their own to the United States as well to lay the groundwork for more organized campaign. And in 1952, just prior to the seventh session of the UN General Assembly, they opened the Moroccan Office of Information and Documentation in Manhattan. And that becomes the most active and most important of their offices abroad. They begin to publish newsletters, magazines, they give interviews to the press, they meet journalists, diplomats, and they're extremely effective at reaching out to the elites of the United States, as well as visiting foreign diplomats, who then in turn present the case for Moroccan independence before the general audience, because that had been the goal ever since the beginning, right? Instead of just a bunch of Moroccans talking about Morocco, they wanted to get people living there, in France, Frenchmen, in Egypt, Arabs or Egyptians, and in New York, Americans to stand up for their cause because they knew that that would give them a legitimacy that they needed to make their case heard. And sort of the two most prominent people they draw on their side are Eleanor Roosevelt. So Eleanor Roosevelt becomes fascinated by the cause and basically uses her, you know, syndicated press column to tell her readers about Moroccan nationalism and tells them to, you know, inquire about this topic and to become sympathetic towards the Moroccans. And another person that is extremely prominent at that time is Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. The Moroccans go to Washington, they work him really hard, and he travels to Morocco. And he comes back and writes an article in Look Magazine, right, which back then was a really important publication. And he basically decries the French, quote, police state as racist. He talks about terrorism towards the Moroccans. It's a complete um, disaster for the French embassy, which is shocked about that. But it sort of symbolizes how the Moroccans had been successful in presenting their case to these important people who then become so-called brokers that spread their message on their behalf in front of a general audience. And what what is the effect of all of this lobbying? Because I think here you demonstrate where it actually, it, all this concerted effort to get Americans talking about Morocco and Frenchmen talking about Morocco, where does it sort of pay off? So the first big moment that everybody had been looking forward to is the seventh session of the UN General Assembly in November, December 1952. And the Moroccans really have so much hope for it. And the Americans really feel the pressure from within and from the outside. But of course, NATO and French NATO membership is more important than Morocco. And the outgoing, you know, Truman, uh, uh, administration, the incoming Eisenhower administration, basically have the same attitude. So they sort of worked behind the scenes to water down the UN uh, resolution that basically says the, Moroc- the French should sort of find a peaceful understanding with the Moroccans, which on the one hand is a huge disappointment to the Moroccans, but on the other hand, had it not been for their active lobbying, that issue would have never been on the agenda in the first place. So the Moroccans stay, they continue going to Washington, they continue working with diplomats and other politicians and bringing up their topic again and again and again. And if you look at the records, the, the, the records of the State Department, um, it becomes very clear that the U.S. diplomats really feel a lot of heat on this topic. And the United States administration, then the Eisenhower administration, never really comes out and forces France to, you know, change course in Morocco. So you could say it wasn't like a full success. But behind the scenes, in meetings between American and French diplomats, the U.S. um, representatives all the time tell the French, you have to change course. It's creating, it's a disastrous situation for you. It's embarrassing us in front of the uh, Arab world. And you need to do something. Just do something, fix this problem, make it go away. So 
again, you know, to sort of sum it up, I would argue that, you know, the, it wasn't that all the problems were solved and that, you know, the American politicians were all in, but you can really trace in the archives how these activities played out, how they did pressure the U.S., who did pressure the French. In France, to sort of uh, answer the second part of the question, it was a little bit easier to trace because, like I said, there are all these really famous politicians and important individuals that support Morocco ultimately and advocate in the National Assembly at least by 55 publicly, already by 53 behind the scenes for Moroccan independence. And then just to clarify, the ultimate decision that the French make to leave Morocco has a lot to do with the outbreak of the Algerian revolution in November 1954. And the French say, well, we really got to keep Algeria. So, you know, well, might as well leave Morocco. So that is a major factor. But this lobbying, this international pressure, this sort of permanent diplomatic harassment that they are experiencing is another factor that ultimately contributes to their decision to leave Morocco and to Moroccan independence in March 1956. So then in your fifth chapter, you bring us back to Morocco, where we're now in Rabat, and it's almost as though the Sultan literally swoops in, which is, I imagine, how many of the nationalists felt too. So tell us, what's this chapter about and what's the Sultan doing? Right. So the final chapter, I would argue, really lays out the main argument the best, right? Because the Sultan had always been the symbolic figure of the nationalist movement. So first of all, I mean, I, I think it's it was heartfelt sympathy and love for their monarch. Um, and whenever they, you know, talked about Morocco, they're like, well, we live under the rule of the modern and enlightened monarch who will lead us to progress and et cetera, whatever. Um, and that was heartfelt. Um, but they themselves really thought we were going to have some sort of, you know, uh, maybe like, like, like Britain, some sort of uh, constitutional monarchy at the end. The monarch himself is exiled by the French in the fall of 1953, and he returns in 1955. And by that time, he's become an, a legend, right? During his exile, people saw his, his face in the moon. Um, people prayed for him. He really becomes the embodiment of the Moroccan nations. When he returns, there's hundreds of thousands of people greeting him. And he's sort of the symbol of the return of sovereignty, national pride, and ultimately independence. The French do their very best to hand over the state apparatus directly to him. Because they know that as a monarch, he's not going to come up with any crazy radical political experiments. Um, you know, this is the time when we have Arab nationalism under Nasser in the Arab world. And so they decide that he might be their ally. And they sort of help him by establishing him as the number one, the center of the political system. So that's one of the reasons why the monarchy wins out the power struggle uh, in the long run. But another thing that happens is during this period, Mohammed V has realized that the Moroccan nationalists basically had created their campaign abroad as a network, as a social network, and that they had um, recruited people to their network who, like I mentioned, spread the message um, to foreign audiences. And, what, and it was this flexibility, this lack of hierarchies that enabled the nationalists to be so flexible and so effective abroad. But now after independence, Mohammed V manages to co-opt the central nodes within this network by drawing them to his side. So many of these people begin to work as, you know, the press secretary or the chief of the royal cabinet or whatever other function uh, the king can find for them. And others, he just sends abroad as ambassadors, right? So basically all these people that have these skills, right? Foreign language skills, media skills, diplomatic skills. There were not that many around at that time. It really was a... Uh, a seller's market, and he takes them and makes them ambassadors around the world, thereby sort of removing them from the domestic political stage and taking important social and human capital away from the nationalist party, the Istiklal, thereby weakening it even further. And that, I argue, is one of the reasons why he manages to sort of become hegemonic or the monarchy becomes hegemonic. Um, and manages to sideline the nationalists pretty quickly after March 56, and Morocco never really becomes a democracy. 
What is the sort of the, the geopolitical consequence for Morocco too? Because as you noted, it, it has a very specific orientation after independence. Yeah. So under Mohammed V, he basically embraces, you know, th- sort of third world neutrality, right? This is right after Bandung. He believes in, you know, Morocco being independent from all these foreign powers, but behind the scenes, He's pretty sympathetic to the French, as are actually many members of the Moroccan uh, political elite. Um, and he's also very sympathetic to the United States because, you know, they're conservative, they have a conservative foreign policy. Um, you know, one of his biggest fears is that maybe there might be an anti, uh, anti-monarchy anti revolution in Morocco itself and Morocco might become a republic, right? So he is by nature conservative. And he realizes that having the support, especially of the Americans, is pivotal. So he manages to get invited to the United States for a three-day state visit, which is then extended to, like, I think, 12, 13 days, in November 1957. Um, he comes to the United States, you know, uh, meets Eisenhower, meets all these other important people in Washington. It's a great success. But what else he does is he sort of celebrates the legacy of the anti-colonial movement. So he goes to the Supreme Court and he thanks William O. Douglas in person. He actually wants to meet Eleanor Roosevelt. It doesn't really work out for various reasons, but at least the attempt is there. He travels across the United States, right? And it's, it's all like perfect PR. The Moroccans have managed the art of, you know, self-representation abroad, right? He eats, you know, fried chicken, you know, he's with a cowboy hat on a ranch in Texas. He's in Disneyland. He's really everywhere where you want to be seen. The American media loves it. They eat it up. You know, his four daughters are there. They're all unveiled and the media loves that as well. And then ultimately he even goes to the College of the Pacific, which back then is in San Francisco, to personally thank Rom Landau for his efforts. And the uh, chief of protocol in the state, at the State Department is really uh, irritated because he doesn't understand why a foreign head of state wants to go to such an obscure institution of higher learning. Uh, but of course, the reason is to sort of, you know, draw all these former nodes, all these former players within the uh, social network of the nationalist movement to his side. And then the long-term consequences thereof is that the United States establishes a very close relationship with Morocco. It really only fully takes off after his son, Hassan II, comes to power. And so during the 1960s, Morocco becomes 100% a junior partner, a client state in the U.S.-led Western camp during the Cold War. And the CAA and the NSA continue to have excellent relations with the country until today. And then in your conclusion, you you offered sort of a few insights on the nature of this nationalist struggle, as well as some sort of lessons about both its efficacy, but also its limitations. And what are those as you see them? So what I would argue is that by organizing, right, by the Moroccans organizing their struggle as the social network, you see how efficient it is. You see that they can mobilize an astonishing amount of resources in very little time. They can shift resources from Cairo when they realize it's not working to New York in 1952. They can move people around. And most importantly, they can recruit other people to join their network, mainly other foreigners that then, you know, advocate for Moroccan independence on their behalf. So it's very flexible. It really fits into this, you know, a little bit Um, simplistic and idealistic way that too often we think about networks in the 21st century. But at the same time, after independence, you can see how unstable this sort of informal coalition, this network was, right? It wasn't just like uh, a clearly defined party with hierarchies and membership, even though that existed as well. But the whole project, because it was based on a single goal and it was based on informal relationships, it disintegrates very quickly. And thereby, you know, all these great resources that the Istiklal party had acquired during the 40s and 50s basically vanish within a year or two. And one of the arguments I make is that, you know, we really shouldn't um, glorify Um, this networked approach of activism too much because even though it has certain strengths very easily in the long run, it can be defeated 
and uh, it might not be as stable as one might wish when faced with, you know, or when facing more institutionalized opponents such as the royal palace after 56. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I always have one question I like to ask people before concluding, which is, and this might be a sore topic because I know you just published this, but what are you thinking of working on next? Right now, I'm working on a social history of the Second World War in North Africa because Mm. it might sound bizarre, but there has nothing been written on the topic. We do have some military histories of what happened in Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco from 39 to 45. We have some diplomatic histories and a little bit of, you know, something resembling an administrative uh, history as well. But zero has been written on how North Africans experienced the war years. And by that, I do not just mean uh, Muslim communities, but also the North African Jewish communities and the European settlers. I'm looking at how all of these various communities um, across the region experienced the war, how it transformed them, how it transformed the relationship between state and society or societies during this period, and how all of that paved the way for anti-colonial activism that really emerges all across North Africa at the same time in 44 and 45 and subsequently leads to the independence of the three uh, Maghreb states. Kind of an incredible historiographical omission. I didn't actually know that. It'll make for great reading when you write it and a badly needed addition sort of to the to the oeuvre that we have. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. <laughs>